The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Podcast. What a pleasure to have you all on board. And it's a super duper pleasure because returning to the program is the most popular guest that has ever appeared on this show in its five-year history. And we have had some amazing guests that you guys like a lot, but nobody has ever garnered the number of listeners that this man did when he was with us before, and he is Dr. T. Colin Campbell. T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D., has been at the forefront of nutrition research for over 40 years, His legacy, The China Project, has been acknowledged as the most comprehensive study of health and nutrition ever conducted. He is the Jacob Gould Sherman Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University and co-author of the best-selling book, The China Study, as well as author of the New York Times bestseller, Whole, that's whole with a W, and you know that if you know about the whole foods plant-based diet, and also one of my favorite little bitty books of all time, The Low Carb Fraud. If you don't have it, get it. In fact, get a handful and give them to all those people who want to know where you get your protein. And we have also just been joined, speaking of legacy, by Dr. T. Colin Campbell's son, one of them, Thomas M. Campbell II, MD, Medical Director of the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies, co-founder and director of a groundbreaking nutrition in medicine program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, working with individuals and groups to prevent and treat illness using diet and lifestyle, a board-certified family physician. Dr. Campbell is the co-author with his father, T. Colin Campbell, PhD, of the China Study. And guess what? There is a new and enlarged edition of the China Study. It's revised, it's expanded, and it's building on the 2 million plus copies of the original book already sold. If you haven't read it, you're not in the swing of things, but I'll bet you have, and welcome, listeners, and welcome, Dr. Campbell and Dr. Campbell. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) Hi. Hi, everybody. Wonderful, wonderful to have you. So I'm holding the new book, and it's really heavy, (laughs) and it's really cool. So what's new and and revised? What can we find in this version that we didn't see in the first one? You can answer that better, Tom. 
Well, I think it's just, it's rounded out. Each chapter oftentimes has a little commentary about what's happened since we first published the book. Uh, some of the statistics are updated and a little more appropriate. And there's a new chapter on, uh, there's a couple extended uh, areas that my dad added a chapter on academia and why we haven't heard this before. I also had a little commentary about my experience in medicine and how, uh, you know, things have changed over the past 10 years. So it's sort of, um, you know, at, a, at, a, at its core, of course, the same as it was 10 years ago, but then around the edges where there are commentary things that, that, that we felt would add something, we, we added some commentary uh, at, in each chapter, uh, some new studies or, or some new uh, information. Um, so, so it ended up actually being quite a bit longer. I mean, it's quite a lot of new material, um, for sure. And and what is new? What has happened in the past 10 years, or certainly the 20-plus years since the China study was conducted? Well, there certainly seems to be a lot more interest, I think, um, certainly coming from the community who rather like this information, for sure. Um, also, uh, I, I, I'm a little concerned, though, about, you know, our ability to get this information into some of the communities that really should know it, namely some of the people in the, in the structure and the administrative structure, you know, running health programs and things like that. I mean, in my community, the sort of medical research, the so-called scientific establishment, if you will, um, I wish that they were just a little more up to speed with, you know, the kind of support we're seeing you know, beyond beyond that group. But otherwise, I mean, it's really quite impressive, the number of people uh, all over the world, actually, who are sort of asking questions about this and kind of tuning into it. So do you think that the relative lack of interest in the scientific and medical community is just that food seems so innocuous, maybe too simple? Well, let me make, make a comment first. I'm sure Tom want to comment on this. Actually, I want to say this here because uh, I've talked to, you know, I'm not a physician. Tom is. Uh, and uh, I've been in the research community, not in the clinical practice community, of course. But I've talked to a lot of medical schools. And uh, I have to say that I'm really gratified uh, with the uh, increasing interest among the you know, practicing physicians and, and, and people in the medical practice community, uh, they are showing quite a lot of interest, it seems to me. We'd always like to see more, but uh, just the fact that Tom now is the director of this new program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, that to me is a big deal. Uh, a major medical school sort of, you know, standing up and saying, we'd like to hear more about this. But um, I just wanted to put a plug in for uh, the positive side of things that I've seen, namely the the medical community who are, you know, coming to the lecture, the number of universities who are inquiring, or medical schools, I say, inquiring about this, that's a plus. Tom, you want to add something? No, I mean, I agree. I appreciate that. I think that the the programs that are, I always have a slide in some of my presentations about some of the programs that have come online in the past few years or major recommendations, major institutional statements that are much more friendly to the idea of a plant-based diet. And that has really changed quite dramatically since the original version of the China study was published due to, I'm not suggesting that's just due to the China study, obviously, but uh, due to uh, the whole community and, and the science and information getting out there. And, you know, so th there's an enormous positive movement, but there is, you know, let's, we still, of course, recognize that this is a minority opinion and somewhat of a fringe idea. Um, and, it, you know, there's many reasons for that. And I think the one major one is, is this idea of social norms. Personally, when I work with patients or when I talk to people, you know, it's just it's hard for people to see, you know, all the normal things that they've thought of as food and thought of as breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, you know, that's what everyone they know does. That's what they grew up doing. That's what their parents told them to do. It's very hard to say that this is poisoning me. And, you know, I should be eating that really weird stuff over there. And I, I, think, that, I think that that's just fundamentally um, the, social, the social norms uh, that we've come to accept. You know, the, we're, we're a pretty unhealthy population. We are a heavily medicated population, and we have ubiquitous unhealthy food. And unfortunately, all of those situations 
have been prof- profoundly normalized, um, in fact, encouraged by, by some of the you know, status quo uh, uh, industries. Yes. I, I'd I like to it's... add a co- comment a little bit outside the box where I've often been, <laughs> a little bit provocative. Uh, just another thought, uh, Victoria, that I think uh, is important. Uh, you know, we refer to this idea as a vegan or vegetarian sort of approach to understanding things. And, and it's most unfortunate that those two words have become a bit pejorative in a lot of communities we'd like to reach. Um, I mean, there, there's very good and sufficient reason, obviously, for the uh, development of those concepts. Obviously, and they're very old in, many, in a couple of cases, and certainly in the vegetarian case. But uh, the, the book, the, at least the research that I did over the years, was not directed to, you know, it, it was not an attempt to try to prove those concepts uh, to be true. It was really based entirely on the science. I came from the other side of the fence, actually, as I'm sure you know, and, and um, I just followed the science, and that's where it came out. And so uh, the whole idea of calling this a whole food plant-based diet, a very awkward term, I must confess. Uh, I'm the one that came up with that term some years ago, working with NIH, but in any case, I really would like to emphasize that for this information to go forward, for the benefit of everyone, including you know, folks within the vegetarian and vegan communities too, that we emphasize the science, you know, the basic evidence, you know, uh, that underwrites a lot of this this thing. It turns out it's it's. Uh, I, I think it's very useful to think of it that way. And and I also should add too that uh, the diets of the average vegetarian or vegan actually aren't as good as they could be. Uh, there's a fairly significant study that was published about a year ago, the largest, probably the most sophisticated study so far, showed that the average fat, fat content of the meat-eating community, the vegetarian community, and the vegan community is about the same, as is the consumption of refined carbohydrates. And uh, that's, that's kind of a telling statistic. And so what I would say for those who you know, or have joined this community or been part of this community, that it would be a good idea to really pay attention to the science and uh, just have a look at the uh, kind of foods that are really being consumed. Uh, And that's what I think really is the big bang for the buck in a sense. Well, a very good idea. And I remember when you showed a slide or two about that the last time I heard you present, it was extremely powerful, I think especially to me because when I got into this years and years and years ago, you really did have to eat pretty much whole foods if you were going to be vegan. You could have potato chips. That was about it. <laughs> I mean, everything else was really a whole food. And now it's another world and we have lots of other options. So you did write another book um, I'm just going to use first names with all due respect so we know who we're talking to. So, Colin, you wrote another book called Whole, and I have a sense that's one of your favorites. <laughs> Could you just explain that concept of what whole means? Yeah, I do get caught up in that, that idea. I, I rather like it. Uh, we have historically in the nutrition research community as well as in the medical research community too. But in the nutrition research community, we have studied nutrition in large measure uh, that was focused on individual nutrients, what individual nutrients do. Um, and we do it throughout we uh, throughout our society as well as in the professions. That is to say, when we're studying nutrition in the laboratory, we look at one nutrient at a time. You're outside of this normal context, you know, when it's consumed. And at the same time, this sort of, I call it reductionist approach to the science, uh, is displayed for the public too because we value foods and judge foods by how much of the different kinds of nutrients that are contained therein. And, of course, that amount of nutrients in the food does vary a lot for even one food, depending on the season and, and, and other conditions. So the nutrient content of foods varies, uh, but we still judge them by their so-called nutrient contents. Uh, we advertise products too, uh, you know, on food labels, you know, that way too, whether high or low in this, that, or some other nutrient. And although sometimes that may be useful, it's much less useful than what I think is generally understood. Uh, and so what really turns out to be the case, in my view, is that 
nutrients, as in foods, actually work together in marvelous ways uh, as they are absorbed, as they're digested, absorbed, transported, and as they get into the cells of our body. Um, that's an, it turns out to be an infinitely complex system. And it's just a marvelous sort of demonstration of nature at work in many ways, um, how the body sort of looks at the supply of the foods that it, or the nutrients that is provided and then decides on which ones to use and how to use them and where to use them. And, and that there's, we've sort of forgotten this idea of what nature really is all about, the, the fascinating, you know, awesome sort of activity that, that occurs when we think about it that way, and sort of the more wholesome characteristics of whole foods. Gets us away from trying to just take one nutrient as in supplements, for example, to try to solve our problems. So, so I just, yeah. Well, I was just going to ask Tom, when you take this information to an individual patient and they're saying, but what about protein and what about calcium and what about iron, how do you communicate this concept of wholeness? Well, it's, uh, it's usually um, kind of a multi-step conversation. Uh, at the beginning, you know, patients tend to focus on what they're not eat, not uh, going to eat, so they tend to focus on, okay, I have to cut out X, Y, Z, cut out animal foods, meat, dairy, and some of the processed foods. And um, especially when people find out about this message before they get to me, <laughs> it's really largely focused on animal versus plant. So they focus on cutting out the animal foods and then they're eating sort of the processed vegan foods is oftentimes sort of step one. And I have to kind of go through this idea of, of a food fragment, the idea of a food fragment, you know, the idea of oil or sugar, oil and sugar are two of the classic, in my example, that sort of the clearest examples of what I mean by food fragment. With oil, for example, even if you have extra cold-pressed, you know, virgin olive oil, uh, lovely, organic, sort of fancy, exotic bottle of of olive oil, um, realize that that olive oil is just merely one component of an olive. (laughs) I mean, that's that's common sense. You just think about it. You have to press, perhaps, depending on the size of olives, you know, 15 to 40 olives for every tablespoon of olive oil. And... You throw away all the fiber, you throw away all the protein, you throw away all the other nutrients, you throw away many minerals and and many other good things in that olive, and you're left with 100% pure fat with just a few other, you know, vitamin E, uh, a few other uh, nutrients. And all the good stuff gets turned into rabbit food or something else. And sugar's the same way. And so you sort of have an initial conversation about, you know, food fragment. Think about it in a natural way. And that's a new way to think about food for a lot of people. A lot of people have totally lost touch with what nature provides. I mean, they just go to the grocery store and they eat what's the what's in the boxes they like and, you know, this type of thing. But you have to think about all this food came from nature. And you have to think about what, does, what was this food in nature and did we alter it? And did we start taking parts away and, or adding parts in? And once you start sort of wrapping your brain around that think, that way of thinking about food, it becomes pretty easy, um, but certainly there's, a, there's usually a few different conversations that go on. Mm. Well, one conversation that you guys were way ahead of in, in the China study that's in an appendix in the back of the book was the topic of a big old front-page article yesterday on the science section of the New York Times, and that's about vitamin D. So after years of being told you need more and you're probably deficient, here's an article saying, well, you're probably not deficient. And you wrote about that so exquisitely about how vitamin D is a hormone and the process of making it has more to do with our health than just taking it. So could either one of you just jump in uh, and talk about vitamin D and how you see it? Yeah, I might add a comment just so uh, that uh, what's in the book is not overextended. Uh, Yeah, the the story about vitamin D that we put in the China study was, of course, in the appendix, and it it was put there uh, in part to try to demonstrate the concept of, uh, you know, there's more to the story than just simply just measuring how much vitamin D, in a sense. And so that's what we were telling. And and I raised some questions, you know, having to do with, 
you know, our our enthusiasm for vitamin D that was emerging at that time. Um, and one of the questions really had to do with the way in which vitamin D is formed. It's obviously best formed by being in the sunlight, and it's a precursor product is, you know, converted by the sun's rays into the vitamin D that we use. That form of vitamin D goes to the liver, gets stored there for the most part. It's called 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And so, it, and our storage tank, you know, can be partly full of, or, or altogether full of what it can go up and down without necessarily compromising, you know, the effect of vitamin D on our body. So, but what we do when we measure vitamin D or vitamin D status, we're measuring the storage form, and we make judgments about how well off we are depending on how much we've we have in the storage tank. Um, and that doesn't that doesn't quite equate with with real health. The, the real story about vitamin D has to do with it's being converted when the body desires it. Uh, it's being converted to a product called the 125-dihydroxy, or even there's a trihydroxy as well. But in any case, these products are, are much more potent than the storage form. And the body decides when it wants those storage forms, you know, to be produced. So it does its good work. And so vitamin D is a very important nutrient. There's no question about that. But the problem is we are, have been focused on that, the need for vitamin D, very simplistically, just by looking at the amount of storage. That doesn't mean to say, however, and I want to emphasize this point, it doesn't mean to say that vitamin D is not useful, you know, under some conditions, as a supplement, perhaps. We knew that from many years ago, back in the 1920s when it was discovered. Uh, it was useful, for example, and it was shown to help, as I recall in those early studies, I think there were young boys who had rickets. And so that kind of obviously identified the nutrient and, and so it went. And so I, I, I'm sort of, I want to keep an open mind, you know, to when it might be so when not. But like other sort of situations like this, those single nutrients may be useful if it's clearly demonstrated in an individual person that they get a response from, you know, supplementation. So it's, it's not an all or nothing kind of thing, but uh, I do believe rather strongly, as we put in, in the China study, or at least inferred it, that the whole story about vitamin D has been made much too super, superficial and overemphasized. Tom, you, you want to add something to that? Yeah, I just add that in general supplementation, there are two sort of uh, things to keep in mind with supplementation in terms of the purposes of supplementation. One purpose is to avoid frank deficiency. That means that there is not enough of a substance for the body to maintain basic function. And so if you have frank deficiency of vitamin D in adults, you get osteomalacia. In kids, you get rickets. Uh, you have so such a low vitamin D level, you can't absorb uh, calcium very well. You know, hormone systems start getting out of whack. It changes bone, uh, bone remodeling and growth and so forth. So that is a frank deficiency. And uh, the, the other side of the spectrum is just supplementation to sort of go from a, a normal level or even a low normal level to a super level <laughs> and go from the low normal level to a super level where theoretically you're going to get all these benefits for chronic disease and, you know, this, this high vitamin D for multiple sclerosis or various cancers or that type of thing. And although we would love for that to be beneficial for people, so many times over and over and over that that second kind of approach of going from a no, you know, a little bit of a good thing is good. So let's have a lot of a good thing. Let's go ahead and boost our vitamin D way up using supplements that time and time again, unfortunately has been shown in general to be totally ineffective for chronic diseases. Um, but avoiding frank deficiency does remain an important thing. I mean, people still, I've seen, a kid with rickets, you know, I've seen adults with, with vitamin D levels less than 10 who have, you know, osteo, uh, some, some, some uh, not so hot looking bones. Um, so, you know, having uh, a, a low normal level, having some uh, reasonable level of vitamin D is reasonable. And, and we live in a culture, unfortunately, where people oftentimes for six months of the year, especially in the Northeast here, um, you don't get any sun. They don't get out during the daytime hours, and they, and, and they don't get <clears throat> any sunlight on their skin. So 
you know, avoiding a frank deficiency is not unreasonable in that circumstance, with the, I think, with a very low-dose uh, vitamin D. I'm certainly not against that, but there's this other, the, the much greater emphasis on much of the vitamin D is on going from a normal level and trying to supercharge your your long-term health by going to a higher level, which has been proven to be to be um, ineffective. So, uh, you know, one other tangent, one side note is that one of the things I've been impressed with recently is some of the sunshine, some of the uh, literature on sunshine exposure and the benefit of sunshine exposure. So, you know, I encourage people. Um, to get outside in the sun between the hours of 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., uh, you know, for 15 minutes uh, a day with no sun tan lotion, with, um, you know, expose your skin, but do not burn. <laughs> do not get a sunburn. That, there's, no, there's no doubt that getting a sunburn increases your chance of melanoma. But chronic sort of non-burning moderate sun exposure is likely to be beneficial for uh, Melanoma, interestingly enough, it likely will lower your risk of melanoma, but also um, improve your risk of many different chronic diseases, potentially cancers, a uh, variety of cancers, and, uh, protect, and other disease, autoimmune diseases. So sunshine spo- exposure remains, <laughs> remains incredibly fashionable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just don't, don't bur- do not burn. Uh, do not burn. But, you know, taking that pill of vitamin D, it's not going to replace uh, what, what we should be doing. I see. Well, just asking, and from my lay point hat, sometimes it seems that people want to do a supplement rather than going all the way to a drug. So, for example, somebody working with some osteoarthritis might say, well, if I can get a, a nice vegan glucosamine instead of going to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, what's wrong with trying that first? Or something that is always tempting me because, you know, I'm vain and I'm getting older and I have noticed that my hair and my nails are not what they once were. And some studies imply that taking more biotin than you really need can keep your nails from peeling and things like that. And so the vain part of me wants to take it. And the Dr. Campbell fan part of me doesn't want to take it. So help me not be schizophrenic. What do I do? <laughs> well, I, I think that the, the that that type of approach using supplements um, is more of a almost like an herbal sort of nutraceutical. It is almost actually a pharmacologic approach. And you're taking an isolated chemical out of food and you're using it for a specific uh, outcome and. You know, sometimes there certainly may be some bio, biological effects. Um, you know, you can take uh, uh, curcumin or, or certain um, uh, spices or uh, individual nutrients and put it in a pill and, and magnify it 100 times and you get, a, you get some drug effect. And uh, I think that's a separate conversation than nutrition um, and, and what nutrition should be. So I think it's just in terms of keeping those conversations separate and there may be times or circumstances where a supplement, you know, uh, uh, perhaps may be indicated for any for any individual's particular medical circumstance or medical situation or particular concerns. Perhaps there is some uh, indication for a supplement, but it's very important to keep that very separate in my mind from nutrition. Very good. Yeah, just a- just to add to that, um, I've, I've obviously become very impressed over the years and more and more um, sort of interested in a sense and more convinced that the whole food plant-based diet where we're eating basically all good food, we're getting sunshine, we're getting exercise, we're doing the whole thing as a lifestyle essentially, that that approach really done well uh, had such a broad effect on a variety of different diseases, many of which we already know. Uh, but uh, as I've lectured around, I have people come up from time to time, and of course I want to emphasize this is anecdotal, but nonetheless, the the philosophy of, of the whole food plant-based diet supports this notion that the effect of eating the right food, really doing it well, uh, is so impressive and is so broad-based that it really has benefits for a lot of different things. And so... Unfortunately, when people want to just use a supplement one kind or another, it's not that they may not 
in the short run, see some benefits, especially if they're deficient, as Tom was just saying. You may see those kind of things, but uh, that shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be a substitute, of course, for doing this dietary thing and letting nature run its course first. Absolutely. And, so, and then when you do decide um, under some circumstances that maybe a supplement of one of those, you know, those uh, substances possibly can help, then my, the, the hat that I wear, I want to see the evidence. Mm-hmm. Because a mm-hmm. lot of claims are being made about some of these products that we haven't heard of. They have new trademark names or, and so forth. Uh, I, if they're going to make claims like some or like, like to do, about these things, I want to really see the evidence before I am convinced that it's really working. So I just have to come back to the general uh, hypothesis that it's the whole food plant-based diet, really, that does by far and away, you know, the most good. This is why people love to hear you. Now, I want to put in a plug for the incredible program at the T. Colin Campbell Nutrition Foundation, the plant-based nutrition online course, which I took myself, and I really feel uninhibited at looking at a study these days. You know, always before it was like, no, that's <laughs> that's for people with lots of letters after their names to read. No, now it's for anybody who really wants to get to the point. Also, uh, what one learns there about food policy and, and the USDA versus the FDA. I mean, it's just, it, it's really a splendid, splendid program. So uh, everybody needs to check that out. And we'll put all the URLs for the things that these amazing gentlemen are doing on the um, the show notes at uh, MainStreetVegan.net. But I do want to ask you one question that came up during the course for me, and I'm still unclear on it. And that is something very simple about, now this is a commercial product, and I know that you're all about Whole Foods, but out here in the real world, I see the number of people who don't consume animal products making their own milk to be about the same number as the people who do consume animal products milking their own cow. So I know that people are drinking soy milk and almond milk. And my question is, how can you tell from a fat point of view which is superior? Because soy milk has more fat grams but a lower fat percentage because it's higher in calories. Almond milk by percentage is very high in fat, but because it's so low in calories, it has this this high percentage, but not many grams. Can either one of you straighten that out for those of us who still buy milk in a carton? It's just not from a cow. Yeah, Tom, collecting my thoughts, make a comment because I'm thinking about how to say something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, it's kind of an interesting idea. I think, I think if what I recall when I've looked, compared labels, if I'm not mistaken, the brands I've looked at, they have the same number of grams of fat um, in each serving, so of almond milk or soy milk. But the almond milk doesn't have protein, and certainly if you get unsweetened almond milk, there's no sugar. So the same number of grams for far fewer calories, as you said, uh, Victoria, it's it's a much higher percentage fat in the, in the almond. But I always think of the almond milk is just kind of, it's so dilute, you know, in a, in a glass, there's 30 to 40 calories in a glass of unsweetened almond milk that it's almost water ish <laughs> with a, just a little bit of, you know, almond um, fat, I suppose, you know, almond, almond extract in there. And uh, I think with the soy milk, if you're going for a more complete, food with with that carries some of the protein um then soy milk is is your best bet it's going to be a lot more calorie dense and it's going to have a more complete sort of food profile i suppose you could say that um but if you're going for uh weight loss and and consuming more less calorie dense stuff then almond milk unsweetened almond milk is is probably a little bit better uh looking Looking at it from a long-term chronic disease health point of view, you know, it, it, it's it's truly impossible <laughs> to make any claims, um, you know, on the long-term health effects. I think of, of the two foods, but you know, if you're looking at calorie density, 
and uh, having low, lower calorie density diets uh, for weight loss, I would think unsweetened almond milk is probably your way to go. Well, now yeah, I feel like I really graduated. <laughs> yeah, all my questions have been answered. Go ahead, Dr. Collin. Yeah, the uh, the thought occurs to me, and I've sort of noticed this over the years, uh, that when uh, soy milk was first being produced many years ago, and I'm old enough to remember that history in a sense, uh, we became, uh, interestingly, we became so wedded to the word milk, just the word milk. And, of course, that meant cow's milk in the older days, and that was it, end of the story. Uh, but then the, these plant-based uh, juices, if you want to call them that, came along, and they wanted to call it milk. That, that ended up in court. And still is in some cases in court too, as to whether or not these new products could, these plant-based products should actually be called milk. It was a very, it was a treasure, treasure word in a sense, and people felt like they had to have milk, whatever that meant. Um, and so it, it kind of carried over. We became victimized in a, in a sense to believing that we still should have those some kind of milk, whatever it is, milk on it, on the name. We should have it for drinking. And that's, that's something that I, personally, I don't do that myself, and I, I don't see the point of uh, wanting to drink that kind of milk. I mean, those plant-based milks, if we can call them that, um, are obviously useful for cook, cooking, and people use them for various and sundry things. I understand that. Uh, but to turn it into a beverage to drink, uh, and then in turn to be too concerned about small differences in fat content or some other contents, to be too concerned about that, maybe there is some concern there, but to be too concerned about that is kind of, you know, going deeper into the weeds in a sense. Okay, well, uh, I'll when... get out of the weeds <laughs> <laughs> because there's, there's poison ivy in there. So I, I want to move because I, I realize we have talked about some of the reductionistic things, which is just what you're trying to get us away from, and I very much appreciate your entertaining these questions. I want to move now into a bigger picture that – for those of us who understand your work and the work of some of, of the clinicians who also have contributed to the literature and the bottom of knowledge, body of knowledge, it seems so clear to us, but it's not clear all around. And there are people who are presenting very different ideas with apparent science backing them up too. So can each of you kind of address this this other, you know, the butter is back and, and the Weston Price people and all of these bizarre kinds of claims that come packaged in a way that confuses people? Well, you know, there's been an eternal, uh, essentially, conflict uh, between, uh, for example, uh, wanting to use and eat and consume and justify the consumption of plant-based foods as opposed to animal-based foods. I mean, that is a huge um, uh, dispute, essentially. It's sometimes hard to resolve. And what is clear to me uh, over the years is that the animal food industry, if I can say it that way, uh, obviously don't like what we're talking about. That's, I mean, that's very clear. Uh, and they're going to come up with all kinds of arguments uh, and schemes to try to make their argument. And what happens, and this is a very old bit of philosophy, the, the, I hate to use the word lie, but the, the best lies are the ones that have a kernel of truth in them. And so as they begin to formulate uh, you know, their arguments for why we should be consuming animal-based foods, they'll come up with, for example, avoid, you know, cut out the sugar. Or just low carb. They use the word low carb. And, you know, had they said at the time that they were devising that concept, had they said that they were only referring to the refined carbohydrates, sugar and refined flours and things like that, uh, you know, we could have joined hands to some extent. But they didn't say that and that was not their intent. They wanted to say a low carb diet is not, is, uh, is best. High carb diet is not. Uh, and just leave it at that. And that in, in turn then confronted the kind of information that we're talking about, because the diet that we're talking about uh, was going to have 70 to 80% carbohydrate, obviously in the form of whole foods. Carbohydrate comes from plants. And so it was a kind of a subtle attempt, but a very powerful uh, message, it turned out, that they could, you know, they could sort of, in a sense, question what we're talking about just simply by saying we should have a low-carb diet. 
that's one thing. But there, there's a number of different things that have come up that way that are more nuanced in terms of you know, some specific scientific evidence that they've gotten away with or talking that way. It's sort of picking out a little bit here, a little bit there, and making a big story about it, and trying to... So, so we just have to be aware. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to detect those kind of arguments as to whether they have truth or don't have truth. But um, you know, some of that was in that book, Low-Carb Fraud, of course. But um, I, I just see it continually. There's always yet another idea that we ought to be considering that really... More and so, I don't know, Tom. Uh, you... uh, yeah, I would just add one one thought, and that is that. Um, uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I <laughs> I heard just silence there. Uh, I I just had one thought, and just that I think there's more consensus in nutrition than people realize, and. You know, in the media, we like sensational headlines that are either going to dramatically reinforce what we what we uh, hold to be true or dramatically disagree with what we hold to be true. Either way, you click on it out of anger or out of love. <laughs> you know, the, the bland headline doesn't get a lot of clicks. And so we have this media atmosphere in particular now, I think, that's worsened, where you have a very binary kind of dramatic um, – uh, telling of nutrition information that oftentimes doesn't really reflect the nuances of the science. And if you go back 30, 40 years, I think, Dad, even from when you were on the diet, nutrition, and cancer panel back in 1980, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, I think the message, even from general institutional, you know, from the USDA to, to uh, colleges to whatever uh, uh, experts has been, you know, eat, uh, Eat a, a diet rich in in fruits and vegetables, uh, beans, and, and whole plant foods. Uh, uh, you know, reduce uh, processed foods, whether it's added fats or added sugars, and um, you know, w- watch your overall calorie intake. And and so, in a way, where that has slowly drifted is to a more and more plant based diet. And now, gosh, there's even this term plant based diet has crept into the USDA scientific guidelines advisory committee report, for example. Uh, plant based diet has crept into the cancer research organization language. And so, using a, you know, having a diet more heavily based on, on processed plants, minimizing processed foods, and, you know, making meat and uh, animal foods. A smaller portion of our diet, I think, has been the consensus nutrition recommendation for decades. And I think there's much less confusion than people would like to imagine there is because of the ludicrous headlines that come out. And, you know, people disagree on the, on the edges of that, and they can disagree vigorously over, you know, how much animal food's okay, whether, you know, this type of thing or process, which processed food is worse, that type of thing. But the basic structure, there's much more consensus than people think in terms of what we should be eating. And even the basic, you know, conservative recommendations of what we should be eating that everyone can agree to is dramatically different from the standard American diet. And the standard American diet is just absolutely dominated by processed foods and animal foods with very little whole plant foods. And everybody, every, you know, everyone can, there's consensus as to which direction we should go. So, the the idea that nutrition is just a mess, you can't listen to any of it, I think is a little, you know, it's an excuse for people to ignore all of the messaging and just eat whatever the heck they want, eat that next Twinkie. Um, but uh, I think there's more consensus uh, that, that happens. And, um, you know, in the, in, as far as nutrition research goes, you know, one trend for, for the people who really are saying something totally po- polar opposite of that message, you know, the, the very low carb, the, the message I see over and over to generate confusion is to look at some very reductionist finding out of context, take that finding, and apply it to the whole food. Let me give you an example. Medium-chain triglycerides, medium-chain fatty acids in coconut oil. You can look at a specific type of medium-chain fatty acid and see it does X, Y, Z. It, it, it fights some bacteria in a Petri dish or you know, it fights some fungus in a Petri dish. And now suddenly you have a finding where you can go back, instead of making a claim about medium chain, this medium-chain fatty acid, suddenly coconut oil is, you know, the second coming of all that's good in the world. 
and you can suddenly sell a lot of coconut oil using that technique. And so I see that play out over and over and over and over and over. You know, there's this this um, this uh, food uh, component, food chemical nutrient called K2, vitamin K2. And um, one of the reviews I was trying to look into, like, you know, people asking me, what about K2? Looking at some of the reviews, I found a review out of Europe that was about K2 and the potential benefits and the research. And first of all, the research is far, far from conclusive on anything, really on K2 and chronic disease. But it was impressed me that the research was funded by their industry. And why is that? It's because K2 is found in dairy foods and fermented uh, dairy foods uh, as well. So you get this kernel of, of finding, this very reductionist finding in some study, and suddenly you can make some, some elaborate argument that sounds very scientific, but you're totally ignoring the big picture. And, and you can find that, that, that same um, structure uh, over and over and over in some of these confusing stories. Mm. And that's what you learn when you take the T. Colin Campbell Nutrition Foundation plant-based nutrition program <laughs> of looking for that part of the study and seeing who's, uh, who's funding it. But I do have a question about coconut. When it's whole, and, and it is a whole food, it's still a highly saturated kind of fat, which we're told we shouldn't be eating. Are there some whole foods we should stay away from, too? Actually, uh, let me make a comment on that that particular argument, which refer, refers to the fact that the coconut has saturated fat. You know, the, the the saturated fat idea has been around a long time. It's not good for us, so the story goes. And uh, it was, in fact, saturated fat is more is found more commonly in animal-based foods at higher levels than plant-based foods, as we know. And coconut is a bit of an exception. So coconut sort of took a hit. It was a whole food in a sense because it had saturated fats. The whole story about saturated fats, the history of that is such that, too, even there, we went off in a direction that really wasn't appropriate for all these years. Because in reality, um, the polyunsaturated fats, which are more common in plant-based foods, uh, those, those kind of oils, if you will, they're oils, of course, from their plant-based foods, but those kinds of oils were found many years ago to be associated with lower levels of blood cholesterol, circulating blood cholesterol, which is... You know, an advantage for lower heart disease risk, of course. Uh, and then there were some studies done in the 80s, actually, where the saturated fats and the unsaturated fats were compared. You know, with the hypothesis that the saturated fats are better, in a sense. I'll just use that word in general. As opposed to the saturated fats, it turns out the polyunsaturated oils of plants, mind you, they are more carcinogenic. They will promote cancer, for example, more than the saturated fats. They say, whoa, this is, this is crazy. How can these plant oils do that? Well, it turns out, looking at this, this evidence a little more closely, it turned out that that distinction between the unsaturates and the saturates uh, actually tended to occur only when the total fat intake was too high in the diet. And so all of a sudden, really what, what it turned out, the real story turned out to be, consume a whole food plant-based diet. Don't add a lot of oil saturated or unsaturated. Uh, the, the unsaturated is probably going to be worse because it stimulates more uh, reactive oxygen species, we say, or free radical production, which in turn is not a good thing. And so the saturated fat thing, again, if you look at, depends on how you look at the, the evidence. People will say, for example, oh, saturated fat is okay. You know, there's no real evidence that shows it does what we thought it did. Therefore, butter's back. In reality, it's, again, what we were just talking about before. They took out a little kernel of truth, in this sense almost, to say that saturated fat's not so bad after all, in a sense, and then made it into a big story so they could sell butter and then put it on the cover of Time magazine. And so, uh, in reality, the, the big story is eat the whole food uh, just with the oil and the fat that it has in it. It's fairly low for the most part. Some foods have more. But a little bit of that's not going to hurt either, uh, in my estimation. And so the coconut, the whole coconut, at least thinking about it from this whole food scientific point of view, I, I don't. I think eating some of that is fine. Tom, do you have a different view on that? Or? No, I mean I think you from a from a theoretical point of view, I totally agree. From a practical point of view, I have a slightly different perspective when I work with patients because I, I think that. Uh, people have this ma this master ability to rationalize 
whatever they want to do. So if you're going to climb the tree and get the coconut and scoop out the coconut, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> you know, fantastic. You know, have the whole food in nature, wonderful. But what we are more often faced with is suddenly, you know, having a coconut milk curry with uh, some good nuts and some veggies and boy, those coconut milk in the soup and. Um, we have sort of a unique circumstance. I see this happen all the time. There's a unique circumstance, especially as people are trying to avoid their go-to fatty meals, which is, you know, fatty cuts of meat or cheese or added oils. When they are saying, okay, I'm not going to have any of those, they suddenly realize how delicious a cashew is and how <laughs> wonderful everything can become with coconut milk. And, you know, they... Uh, start to rationalize it, still, you know, satisfying their cravings that they still have by indulging some of these healthy, quote-unquote, healthy whole foods, and they can overdo it. And, you know, in nature, it's very difficult to have, you know, to, to find enough nuts to get a nut butter that then you can smear on o- over some whole grain bread <laughs> or, you know, a coconut milk, enough coconuts to make a coconut milk to have a soup with it every day. I mean, there's just... It's just not, um, I, I think we overdo it. I think we overdo it. And so, you know, getting some nuts that are shelled and having to break them apart here and there is a special occasion. You know, these, these types of foods, these whole foods are healthy. There's no reason to think that they are massively harmful. But I think in this, it's a very unique circumstance where people are trying to avoid their other fatty foods. And suddenly they, they turn, the, turn to the cashew to make cream cheese, they turn to the cashew to make cheese sauce, to make, you know, a, a cookie, a cake icing, um, to make all of their soups better, and coconut milk falls right in line with that. And oh, so from sure. a practical point of view, we, we got to be careful uh, about over-consuming that, uh, those fatty uh, plant foods. But I totally, from a theoretical point of view, I totally agree with my dad. Yeah, and, and I love what you said about if you climb the tree. We we are down to our last couple of minutes, but I know, uh, Dr. Colin, you are doing some interesting writing right now about a new definition for nutrition. What is that? Yeah, I actually have gotten quite interested in that concept of nutrition itself as a scientific topic. I mean, nutrition really has not been understood. It's terribly confusing for most people, to be honest about it. Uh, and I've asked myself, you know, why is that so? I mean, having lived in an academic environment and a nutrition department, particularly for all these years, uh, it is a, almost, I have to say, a, a third-rate science in a sense. It's not regarded as a serious medical science. And so asking the question, digging a little bit deeper, you know, why is it we don't understand nutrition? Uh, and it turns out that it is a holistic concept, things working together. It doesn't lend itself to reductionist interpretation. That's one, one sort of answer. But in a very practical sense, it turns out that uh, medical schools really don't teach nutrition, and the doctors are going to be our leaders in the future. That's it. End of story. Uh, and that's what I'm finding out. The physicians that are, you know, the medical schools, they're quite enthusiastic about this idea. But nutrition is really not taught in medical schools. Secondly, not to any significant extent. But secondly, in the National Institutes of Health, which is the major biomedical research agency in the world, quite frankly, and they supported almost all of my research. In that uh, NIH uh, uh, organization, there's 28 different institutes. There's one for cancer, one for heart, one for this, one for that. Uh, there's not one called the Institute of Nutrition. So, you know, we don't have the funding structure that's required to really look at nutrition. Uh, it's not being taught. And the third thing, which uh, I haven't been able to fully interpret and know the details, but basically there are more than 60 medical specialties. And Tom can answer this better than I can, of course. But the medical specialty idea is important. The way uh, physicians document the work they're doing, the way that they, they determine, I guess, reimbursement and so forth. But in any case, of those 60-some medical specialties, there's not one that's designated for nutrition. That raises a really big new question, and that has to do with uh, really our doctors being reimbursed for the work that they, might, that they would like to do and they can do best and make the most health. That's a problem right there. And so we're... Nutrition to be a medical specialty is my understanding. That would really help a lot to bring attention to the idea that doctors ought to be able to use that and get reimbursed for it. And so it's one of the, that's really one of the really sad parts of the entire system that we now have. 
doctors are not being really taught or not we're not getting the research we need to get on nutrition on top of it they're not being reimbursed for delivering that kind of service the most important kind of service of all Absolutely. Well, I I know you're going to make tremendous strides there, as you have with everything that you have touched throughout your continuing career. And uh, now Thomas M. Campbell, the second MD, is uh, doing that as well at the University of Rochester Medical Center. So, everybody, we have to stop, and I'm so sorry, but perhaps these wonderful gentlemen would be willing to come back and maybe... October, maybe every spring and fall, we'll kind of deep clean our houses and deep clean our prejudices and and get some really great uh, nutritional facts from the Doctors Campbell. The book is The China Study, Revised and Expanded Edition. We'll put all the websites over at MainStreetVegan.net in the show notes. If you're interested in the Nutrition Studies program, uh, NutritionStudies.org. Thank you both so very, very much for being on the show, for being a voice of light and truth and reason, and thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting our program, and to everybody who listened, God bless you, eat your veggies, eat them whole. Yet takes many forms. What goes around comes around. Chant the name of the Lord and be free. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ever been confused by the variety and apparent contradiction within world religions? Join Reverend Paul John Roach every Tuesday for insight into those principles held in common by all the great religious traditions in world spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions. Using discussions, interviews, humor, insight, and practical advice, we will clarify the confusion and reveal simple yet profound truths. Call in with your questions and ideas and help break down the barriers that separate us from one another. That's World Spirituality with Paul John Roach, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Never before in the history of humankind has change been so rapid. Jobs of yesterday are disappearing, and new careers are being discovered. Where competition once prevailed, there is now a pioneering spirit of cooperation and creativity. It has been said, real learning comes about when competition has ceased. When we release limiting ideas and fears, we are then free from a competitive living and the way is open for cooperation and harmonious living. By relaxing, 
letting go, and renewing your faith in positive and good outcomes in all affairs, you can make a harmonious difference in your ever-changing world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.